Well, let's uh, turn together uh, with a view to God's blessing to the book of Exodus, the passage that we read in chapter 17. close of the battle, once Israel win that battle, in verse 15, we read that Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner, Jehovah Nancy. The Lord is my banner. Now, we're resuming our own uh, spiritual journey really as we study Israel's journey through this wilderness. You'll remember all the time that that is a picture or a type of our journey from uh, our spiritual Egypt, the land of sin and ignorance, to the promised land, which is ultimately of course heaven itself. And you'll remember from the previous uh, chapter and the earlier part of this one, that the Lord's people have just received a, a double blessing. First of all, they have received bread from heaven, and then they received water from the rock. And these um, two miracles particularly are a reminder to the Lord's people of two things. First of all, that God will provide for them whatever their need, and that they need to trust God for that. You'll remember that all God's dealings with his people are to do with the formation and perfection of trust, to restore us to the original condition from which we fell. That's the purpose of all the Lord's dealings with us. So he will provide for them and they need to trust in that provision. The second thing that they were being taught was that their real life, their inward spiritual life could only be sustained by God's miraculous provision of grace for them. Grace from heaven. The bread taught them that they cannot live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And the water taught them of the water of life that proceeds from their Messiah, their rock, the Lord Jesus Christ. So their real needs, their deep spiritual needs can only be met by the spiritual provision of God. Nothing in the wilderness will sustain them except bread from heaven and water from the rock. And we need to remember these lessons too. And having taught them these lessons, it's interesting that it's at that point that God at last allows them to meet their enemy. You'll remember earlier on when they came out of Egypt that God did not bring them by the way of the Philistines in case they would see conflict and return to Egypt. Now that of course and obviously didn't mean that they were forever going to be kept from conflict. It just means everything in its time. God prepares us before he allows us to be attacked. And it's a reminder to us that God grades our trials, that he regulates our experiences, one thing after another, 
taught one thing and then taught the next. So here, significantly, they don't meet the Philistines either, but they do meet the Amalekites. Now this battle is fairly easily overlooked in one way, but it's far more significant than we probably realise it to be. And we would expect that in a way because it is the first battle that Israel fought. We would expect it to carry some kind of special significance. And when you look at the battle, there are two things that strike you very obviously about it. The first is to do with the victors, with Israel themselves, and the second is to do with the vanquished. That is, of course, the Amalekites. In connection with the victors, what strikes you is the unusual way in which they win the battle, and especially the role of the rod of God. When it's raised up, high and visible, Israel win. When the rod is lowered, Israel begin to lose, and the Amalekites prevail. So that strikes us in connection with Israel. Their strength rises and falls along with the visibility of God's rod. The second thing that strikes us is in connection with the vanquished, with the Amalekites themselves. And what really strikes us about them is the severity of their judgment. The fact is that although this seems to be only one occasion amongst many which Israel fight with their enemies, there is a particular pronouncement of doom pronounced on this people, utter destruction. And God himself says it. In verse 14, he tells Moses to write this for a memorial in the book. Now, it is the book. This is actually a reference to the Bible that is currently being written. Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua. In other words, tell it to your successor and him to his successor that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. <clears throat> By the way, it's quite an interesting phenomenon that there are many references to Israel's enemies in history. There's no reference to the Amalekites as far as I understand, anywhere outside of the Bible. It's as though they've been forgotten. I will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. Later on, 40 years later, after their wilderness wanderings were over, and they're going into the land, God said something very important to Joshua. Remember, he said, what Amalek did to you as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary. You know, you can clock that for the moment. And he did not fear God. Therefore, God says, when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies, you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. Now these are solemn, solemn words. There is obviously some kind of 
special significance being attached to what Amalek did here to Israel. It's being impressed upon the Lord's people and they are to act as God's executioners on the Amalekites when God gives them rest from their enemies. Now that's why I'm saying that there's more significance attached to this battle than we realize. And to get at that significance, the key again lies in a name. The name of the place itself, Rephidim, you remember from last time, was called Temptation and Contention, Massa and Meribah. But at the end of the battle, Moses doesn't give a name to the place, but he gives a name to the altar, the altar that they built in worship to thank God for his deliverance. He calls that name, the Lord is my banner, or my standard, or my flag, my banner or my flag. And the reason that becomes important is because, well, as the Lord says, he's going to have war with Amalek from one generation to another. So Amalek's doom is down the road, but until that doom comes, there's going to be a constant warfare between Israel and Amalek. And as long as that warfare lasts, the banner is necessary. And that's really why the name is given to the place. And that's why the first battle is important. It is as though God is saying, for every battle you fight, as my people, let this flag be seen. Let it be lifted up, and as you see the flag, you will be strong and you will prevail. But if the flag is lowered, you will weaken and the enemy will prevail. So that tells us something of the importance of this um, particular incident. And I think in a way it kind of <coughs> illustrates a, a text that many of us know quite well. It's from Isaiah, and we've often quoted it in these increasingly darkening times in which we're living. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise a standard or a flag against him. And, of course, that, I hope, is a prayer, because the enemy has come in like a flood into our lands and even into the churches like a flood. And we need the Spirit of the Lord to raise a standard against him. What is that standard? And how do we fight under it? Well, then, let's take a, a closer look at this battle. We'll do so uh, this morning and tonight. <coughs> this morning, we will look at the vanquished, that's the Amalekites. And uh, tonight, we'll look at the victors, the children of Israel. Now, let's begin by looking at the Amalekites themselves. Now, the Amalekites, as a people, uh, were the descendants of Esau. Now, in a way, that seems strange to us because that's very, very recent. In fact, Amalek would be a third cousin of Ephraim and Manasseh, just to put this into some kind of historical and chronological perspective. Amalek himself would be a third cousin of Ephraim and Manasseh. But you remember that God had promised Esau when Esau lost the blessing which he never should have had anyway. But he, he lost the blessing. But God did say that Esau would become a great people and a strong people. 
And it seems that through his grandson, Amalek, he quickly obtained a kind of advantage among other loose nomadic tribes so that they became, they became called by his own name, the Amalekites. So it's not simply the descendants of Amalek, but rather they would be ruling over others. Now, these things are quite easy to understand, actually, uh, when we come from a clan system ourselves. If you, if you look at the more prominent clans in Scotland, you, you'll notice that they have sects, branches, uh, who are distinct, but, but they're under their rule and their authority. So if you, if you took any clan like MacLeod or MacDonald or something like that, you'll notice that there are several sects. So people carry maybe a name like Lamont and they belong to a, a larger clan or something of that kind. Now that's exactly how to understand the Amalekites. They are a, a, a gathering together of peoples under Esau. And sad to say, Amalek obviously carried the same spiritual uh, ca- characteristics as his grandfather Esau. We read of Esau that he was a profane person and a fornicator. That's the New Testament description of him. It doesn't come through quite so clearly in the Old. That's why people make the mistake of feeling sorry for Esau and uh, doing down on Jacob. That is to misunderstand Jacob and it's to profoundly misunderstand Esau. In fact, it's to profoundly misunderstand both. But it's misunderstanding Esau. He was a fornicator and a profane person. He was irreligious and immoral. And that's the characteristic that spread through his tribe and spread through the people attached to him. All these things remind us of how powerful a thing sin is, how sin in your life will affect your children to the third and fourth generation, maybe, maybe even beyond it, and how, how careful we should be in our chances whether they're moral choices or spiritual choices, that we might be infecting many, many people besides ourselves with a terrible spiritual disease, maybe bringing the wrath of God to the extent that the Lord blots out the remembrance of such people from under heaven. What what an evil thing sin is. What an evil thing it is. But clearly Amalek here represents powers much greater than themselves. In fact, Amalek here represents the spiritual forces that are always at war against God's people. You'll notice, by the way, that the war here is unprovoked. Israel don't do anything to warrant an attack. All they do is exist. And that's the problem. I'm reminded sometimes of many of these nations that surround even the nation of Israel today. They have it in their charter that Israel ought to be eliminated. It's, it's written into their constitutions. The elimination of Israel is written in there. Uh, just because that's who they are. It, it's like that. Uh, the forces that are against the Christian are against the Christian because that's what they are. All this people need to do here is to exist in order to bring the wrath of Amalek upon them. Amalek has a special opposition to the people of God. Well, there are forces in this universe that are firmly opposed to God and to his people. So Amalek here represent the devil, his principalities and powers, myriads, legions of fallen dark angels under the command of the devil himself 
and of course the world which Jesus tells us lies in the wicked one I think the wicked one is a better translation than lies in wickedness both are true the world lies in wickedness but I think the real translation there is that it lies in the wicked one it lies in the grasp of the wicked one that is what Amalek really is so this battle in other words is a battle between the people of God and the powers of darkness and one of the great mistakes that um, the Lord's people make is to underestimate the seriousness of this conflict and the difficulty of this conflict and to underestimate your enemy is fatal in any walk of life and it doesn't matter what you're going to do suppose you've got to step into a boxing ring the last thing you want to do is to underestimate your opponent but the strange thing is that as Christians we sometimes behave as though the powers of darkness were not really all that strong Whereas they are very, very strong. And not only that, they just don't let up. They don't let up. There's not a moment of the day when they are not um, around you and looking for an opportunity of one kind or another to bring you down. And to realise that is of primary importance. And we'll see that as we go on. Now, let's look then this morning at the enemy and we can look at his motive uh, his objective and his strategy let's begin with his motive now I mentioned a minute ago that Amalek is not provoked we simply read that they came and fought with Israel in Rufidim why did they do that? Well, the book of Deuteronomy tells us, in that little passage I referred to earlier, we're told that they attacked Israel because they did not fear God. By implication, they attacked Israel because they did fear God. And they attacked Israel because they did not fear God. Now the fact that we're told that they didn't fear God itself implies that they chose not to. And that's true. If you just go back to what I said a minute ago, it's not as though the Amalekites had no contact with truth. Amalek had contact with truth. He was the grandson of Esau. He was the great-grandson of Isaac. The great-great-grandson of Abraham. All that involves a rejection of truth. And you can't embrace a lie without rejecting a truth. And of course they did that. It's true, of course, that the evil spirits that encircle us did exactly the same thing. There is not one spiritual being in the cosmos that did not once fear God. There may be myriads of fallen angels, and they do the devil's bidding, they serve the interests of darkness, They are in deep opposition to God, but every one of them was once a believer. Every one of them was once created holy in the image and likeness of God. But we're told that when the great dragon himself fell from heaven, that he took a third of the stars with him. It is quite a thought to think that a third of the heavenly host fell into wickedness when Satan fell into wickedness. It's quite astonishing to think of the power of sin there too. 
you would think that the example of sin being set by Satan wouldn't really affect all that many in heaven with him. But he took down a third of the stars with him. That again reminds us of the power of sin, which we underestimate at our peril. So they chose not to fear God. And the fact of the matter is that this is their motive for attacking Israel. They have a special dislike for those who love and fear the Lord. And I suppose we could say that their opposition to the Lord's people is grounded in their opposition to God himself. The reason they don't like the Lord's people is because they don't like the Lord. They don't fear God. At the end of the day, that's why we're all not Christians. If we've heard the gospel, we've chosen to reject it. We don't fear the Lord. If we're not Christians, if we're not seeking him, we may blame the church for that. We may blame Christians that we know for that. But at the end of the day, the reason you're not a Christian is because you don't want to be. You don't fear the Lord. You don't want to keep his commandments. You don't want to be holy as God is holy. Fundamentally, in your heart, there is an opposition to God. Like I said, your rejection to, of, of Christianity might be dressed up in lots of other ways, and I don't say that there's not a grain of truth in them all. But deep down, here's the real reason. You don't fear God. You don't love God. Therefore, you don't love God's people. There's an opposition in you against them just because they are God's people. If they cease to be God's people, you would still love them. Because your love for them is only natural. It is not spiritual at all. The second thing is this, and it follows from that. It's just tied in really to what I said. If their opposition fundamentally is to God, there's no surprise that it breaks out in an opposition against his people. If you are a Christian, you, you love another Christian because you see Christ in them. The world hates the Christian because they see Christ in them. It is the Christ in you that the world hates. That is why they hate you. Now the Lord Jesus himself expressed the relationship between Christians and the world in just that way. I mean there may be times when you say, well is that not a bit strong to say that the, that the world hates the Christian? Well I can understand why you say that or ask that, but Christ himself describes it like that. In John 15, he says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. So, so that's Christ's own authority to pronouncement, that the world hated him. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. If you were like them, if you thought like them, if you judged like them, if your values were like theirs, they would love you. But because you are not of the world, and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And John himself, who, who heard Christ speak these words, he says a very similar thing. In 1 John 3, verse 13, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Don't be surprised at it. In fact, we know that we have passed 
from death to life because we love the brethren. <coughs> he goes on to speak of Cain who killed his brother. Why did he kill him? Because his works were evil and his brother's works were righteous. It's as simple as that. He saw God in his brother and therefore he had a murderous spirit against him. So marvel not if the world hates you. Now, of course, there are varying degrees of that hatred and opposition. Varying degrees. And the degrees to which the world hates you is conditioned upon two things. First of all, your own spiritual health as a Christian. The less Christ is visible in you, the more comfortable the world is with you. So the less of God they see in you, the less of his word they hear from you, the less of his obedience they see in you, the more comfortable they are with you. Why shouldn't they be? Because they think you're really just like themselves. The second thing that the hatred depends on is their own spiritual health. Even though they're not converted, they can be either near to the kingdom or far from it. The Holy Spirit can be working in their lives or really not working in their lives. So sometimes that opposition is covered. It's difficult to see. At other times, it's very violent and it's unrestrained. You know, the last Amalekite that you read of in the Bible, I don't know if you're aware who that is, but the last Amalekite is actually a man called Haman. And Haman was, of course, the man who, who tried to obliterate the Jewish people. It's funny, you need to remember the books of the Bible, you sometimes can't have got it, though. Esther, we read suddenly that this man comes to prominence in the Persian Empire. He's just promoted. Uh, he appears to come from nowhere, but he doesn't come from nowhere. He, he is called an Agagite at this point, because Agag was the king of the Amalekites. Now, Saul was supposed to completely obliterate that people, but he failed. So there's a remnant left, and here amongst them, this one comes to power. King Ahasuerus, who was the emperor of the Persian, king of the Persian Empire, promoted Haman, the Agagite, and advanced him, and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. So here's this Amalekite from nowhere, coming to power in the Persian army. Now, um, when Haman saw that Mordecai the Jew did not bow or pay him homage, now there was a reason Mordecai did not pay him homage, which was due to the fact that he was an Amalekite. Haman was filled with wrath. But he did not wish, now listen to this, he did not wish to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they told him of Mordecai's people. So instead Haman saw to destroy all the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Isn't that remarkable? It's the spirit of the serpent coming through in this man. He's not satisfied with the death of one. The minute he hears that this man is a Jew, he wants them all dead. He will use his power to bring about the total annihilation of God's people upon the earth. Now, what can be more revealing of the devil's work than that? 
That is the last Amalekite that you read of in the Bible. And he is motivated by a hatred for God's people. <coughs> a hatred for God's people. Now, friend, if you're not a Christian here today, I don't know what your attitude is to the Lord's people. Maybe the Lord is at work in your heart, uh, and maybe you feel a drawing towards them. And that is a good sign, especially if that drawing is just because they are the Lord's people. In fact, that, that, that's an indication that you might well indeed have passed from death to life, or that you're in the process of passing from death to life. But consider whether your opposition to some people is just because they're the Lord's people. I was telling somebody the other day of when I was going to, to visit somebody in a particular locality. I'd only gone as far as the gate, and the person came out to the door and started shouting obscenities at me because I was wearing a collar. Now, I didn't know this person. Uh, and this person didn't know me. No idea who I was at all. It was the collar she obviously responded to. She responded to the collar. So in other words, it had nothing to do with me. It had to do with God, really. Although she would probably say, I can't stand ministers, or I can't stand Christians. But really, it was God she couldn't stand. But she started shouting obscenities and all that kind of thing. And I... Well, remember, just a few weeks later, hearing that she had been burnt in a fire. And I was wondering to myself, well, did you go into eternity the way I saw you at the gate? I sincerely hope not. How do I know these things are hidden with the Lord? But that kind of opposition um, can be in people's hearts just because a person represents the Lord, because they are a Christian. You sometimes hear from politicians, my ways. They're quite considerate of everyone and everything except a Christian or being born again, or anything of that kind. The, the venom comes out. And it's only when the venom comes out that you realise it was in. It can be hidden out of politeness and a desire to appear sociable and so on. But lo and behold, the lid comes off and there it is. It's the venom against God and his word. There's plenty of it in the Scottish Parliament, I'm afraid. Plenty of it. But there's plenty of it in all our institutions. So that's the motive, hatred. What's the enemy's objective? Well, again, let's understand that too. The objective is total annihilation. That came through in connection with Haman. It's Mordecai a Jew. Let's get the lot. Peter said that our adversary, the devil, goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, which means to gulp down and to swallow. To destroy, to finish them off. As Christ said, it's the devil's business to kill and to destroy. Now, the devil has no knowledge of God's election. He doesn't know. I mean, there are millions of professing Christians. I mean, literally, there are billions of professing Christians. The devil doesn't know who are God's elect and who is not. He, he just doesn't know that. The election of God is a hidden thing to the devil. And for him it's just as important to target Peter as it is to target Judas Iscariot. When he asked that awful permission of God that night, an awful permission, permit me, he says, to sift these apostles of yours, to sift them like wheat, because I believe that if I'm permitted to sift them as wheat, I will expose them 
to be nothing but chaff that the wind will drive to and fro. Well, of course, as he sifts that night, Judas falls through. And I'm sure he thought for a moment that Peter was going to fall through as well. I'm quite sure when Peter denied with oaths and curses that he ever knew the Lord, I'm sure that Satan said, oh, well, that's what I wanted Job to do many, many years ago. And I, I can't believe, as it were, that I've found the strongest of all the disciples and I've made him speak oaths and curses by the fireside. And when he went out to weep, was he not going to hang himself, perhaps, like Judas? But no, he wasn't successful there. But he's not to know that. My point is that he doesn't know who is elect and who is not. So as far as he's concerned, he'll put as much energy into you, a real Christian, as he will into the hypocrite. Because he just doesn't know. And who knows? Even if he can't make you renounce the faith... He can make you do or say something so bad that will make someone else renounce the faith. And sometimes that's a, a side objective that the devil has. Well, if I can bring him down, even a little, I can maybe bring 20 or 30 down with him. And his objective is that, to destroy. You say, well, can he be so full of hatred? Oh yes, friends, he can be so full of hatred. There are some people who are so full of love, it's remarkable and it's beautiful to behold. There are some people who are so full of hatred, it's absolutely ugly to behold. And God alone knows, really, we don't, just what a person is like when he's totally given over to hatred. And it can happen bit by bit. Bitterness, cynicism, wrath, frustration, anger. And little by little, any remnant of the goodness of God is just eaten away and there's nothing left but the spiritual cancer that has taken over. That, my friends, is the devil. That is true of all the demonic agencies. And sad to say it will be true of all those who follow them into a lost eternity. That not an awful thought. To have nothing left of the image of God in us except that we live forever. All our characteristics shared with the devil and none shared with God himself. That's the desire. God may be blotting Amalek's name out from under heaven, but the spiritual Amalek desires your name blotted out from under heaven. He wants nothing less than that. And that takes me back to where I started, the need to understand that we're in a battle. You know... You feel sometimes that the contemporary church is, is playing a game. You feel the services are like games. You feel it's, it's all about entertainment. And you think that the issues at the end of the day are not really all that important. But they are. There is nothing comparable in importance to this. How can it be? Our Lord said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? Imagine that, gaining the whole world. What profit is it if you lose your soul because of what's involved in the loss of your soul? The size of the loss makes the gain of the world nothing. And this is a world in the grip of Satan and principalities and powers. 
It's far more powerful than you are individually and than all of us as Christians are collectively unless we draw our strength from God. If to any degree we're drawing strength from ourselves, we'll start losing the fight. And who knows whether we will be amongst the carcasses who fall in the wilderness. After all, the, Amal the Israelites who perish here at the hands of the Amalekites are the first carcasses that fall in the wilderness. Know thine enemy. And unless we know our enemy and learn how to fight well, we're going to be in trouble. And I think it's worth mentioning in that connection that there's not one square inch of territory that the devil loses that he doesn't want back. You, you may sometimes make the mistake of thinking that, let's say when a person becomes a Christian, oh well the devil says, well I've lost that one. He hasn't lost it. I mean, that's what I was saying before. He loses nothing. He loses nothing. Not one soul. There's not one child that he doesn't want. Not one family that, that he doesn't want to regulate. Not one nursery. Not one school. Not one university. Not one law court. Not one nation and not one government. He wants the whole lot. And if he loses it, he'll fight hard to get it back. I remember reading a while back about... Talking a while back to, to someone who, who was talking about a sports person... Whenever it was a footballer, said whenever they lost the ball, they fight so hard to get it back. That's what I like about them all the time. They fight so hard to get it back. Well, that's who Satan is. There's nothing admirable about Satan in one sense, but his sheer tenacity is something to behold. He won't let go of ground. What an inch! If you lose, if you make a gain in your soul today, he'll be at it tomorrow. Because they see the world as theirs and not God's. You listen to government speak, and when the government speaks, they'll say the best they'll say is, "Oh well, you Christians, uh, you'll be a protected minority. Uh, you'll be a protected minority." R really? So you're calling the shots then? It, it's as though it's as though secularists are the gods, and they will assign their little pockets here and there to people as though they rule King Nebuchadnezzar was quite content to take the articles of holy furniture from the holy land and to put them in his own temple safe there I won't destroy them in fact I'll admire them but they're in my temple and they're under my control that's always what the world does we might let you live but only at our beck and call. The world is run on our principles. Anti-God, anti-Christian. That's how Amalekites fight. They want to destroy the name of Israel, like we sang in Psalm 83, from under heaven. I don't know, but it's a strange thing, you know, that the first enemy that attacks here is actually a relative, is it not? Why are the first enemies of God's people here, people who are going to be blotted out from under heaven, why are they actually relatives? I suppose that's a reminder to us that the devil can sometimes come through those who are very close to us. Sometimes he can overtake churches, like the Westminster Confession of Faith tells us. I think I referred to it a few weeks ago that some true churches can so degenerate as to become synagogues of Satan. 
That doesn't mean full of Satanists. What it means is that Satan has control. He's pushed the word out. He's pushed the true doctrines of the faith out. So it can still appear like a Christian church, but actually he's in control. He's governing the message. He very carefully edits what's in and what's out. I remember a few years back, a prominent Christian speaker who was supposed to speak in a local university had to be pulled by the university. You know, we're familiar with people being pulled and cancelled from speaking in universities for certain uh, reasons to do with political correctness. This, this particular woman who was going to speak about um, the Christian position on things like sexuality and so on, she was pulled from speaking in, in university because the local churches complained. The local churches complained and she had to be pulled by the university. These are synagogues of Satan. What else can they be? They're doing Satan's work. Well, the motive is hatred and the objective is total destruction. <laughs> What about the strategy? Well, Paul said we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. No, you're not ignorant of them either. Neither am I ignorant of them. But I'm still amazed how long it takes him to recognise them and to act upon them. Now, that's where Deuteronomy comes in. I don't know if you want to turn to it. You can easily. The page number is easy to find. It's 307 in the Church Bible. Page 307, Deuteronomy 25, at verse 17. Deuteronomy 25, at verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how, how he met you on the way, and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary. There's a lot in there. There's a lot in there. He attacks those. He met them, but he he stayed around till till they had passed, and he approached from the rear. Those who were lagging behind. And they were lagging behind because they were tired and weary. Tiredness and weariness are dangerous things. In fact, they're dangerous physically. Um, the devil spots physical tiredness too, and mental tiredness. And, you know, he can do his own work on that alone. He can do his own work on that alone. Sometimes you can be tired in a work, and then you can get tired of the work. And whenever, whenever you're weak and tired, it's vital that you retain your spiritual strength. That, that doesn't need to fluctuate. When the Lord roused the disciples in Gethsemane, are you still sleeping, he said? Watch, even pray, lest you fall into temptation. In other words, temptation is coming. Don't fall into it. Don't fall into it. Stay awake. Stay vigilant. Stay prayerful. Because he's the spirit is willing. Flesh is weak. So stay awake. And stay vigilant. Now Peter, I mentioned a minute ago, compares the devil to a lion. 
Sometimes the devil's compared to a serpent. The points of similarity are actually more important than the points that differ. Certainly we associate a lion with ferocity, a serpent with cunning, but, but they both uh, have their way of getting their prey and devouring it. The serpent just, I'm sure you're aware of the way it can unhinge its jaw and open its mouth so wide that it can actually swallow a whole sheep. It's quite an astonishing thing when you actually see it happen. It can take a whole sheep inside itself. The lion is, is clever enough. The lion watches for ages before he does anything at all. Uh, I said that Satan has no virtues, but there's a funny kind of patience in him. He can wait. He can wait. The, the lion will watch his prey for hours. For hours. And he is watching to see the weak one. Simple as that. He's watching to see the weak one, and they've learned through the years the way that God has created and adapted them. They're enabled to recognize weakness in their prey. There's a herd of whatever, antelope or zebra or whatever, they will spot the weak one. Now the thing is that he hides himself, doesn't move, doesn't make a sound. Um, and as long as the animals are vigilant, and, and you see them, you know, when they're eating there, they're, they're looking around, they're, they're just looking around themselves all the time. As long as they do that, they're actually fine. It's, it's if they lose their vigilance like that, that they're in trouble. But he's extremely patient, and he watches out for the ones that are weak. And um, the danger is, for anyone, as a professing Christian, if you begin to fall behind, the stragglers at the weir. And they're struggling at the weir just because they're tired and weary. Because they're tired and weary, they become discouraged. And so they start to visibly fall behind. They're not following the Lord fully like Caleb was, wholeheartedly. They're following the Lord like Peter was, at a distance. That's why Peter denied the Lord with oaths and curses, because he wasn't where he should be, although he thought he was. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Not let him who stands take heed lest he fall. The scripture says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, this lagging behind, there's no doubt, I think it was in our own magazine this month, or the month before, um, who was the man? Brownwell North. He gave some rules for spiritual counsel, and the first was to be, to be reading the word and to be praying. And he said after these two that that was the secret of everything else. So, friends, it is. Lagging behind the Lord's people begins not in public but in private. It begins in the secret place. Any advance that the world makes in your life begins with a declension in the secret place. If your defence is strong, the devil's wasting his time. Once the defence, for some reason, is weakened, he's not wasting his time anymore. And he'll sniff around you until he identifies that point. And as the Puritan once said, he rejoices when he sees the secret place neglected. He trembles when he sees a Christian on his knees. So, public lagging behind begins in private, in the reading of the word and in prayer. 
And the first sign of our ill health is that we're not in secret uh, praying and reading the word. And really, I, I don't care to what extent things have become manifest in your life. Is that, if that is true of you in secret right now, you are in trouble and you will fall. To what degree, I have no idea. But if that's true of you, you will fall. And after that declension in secret, it's bound to break out. First of all, meetings that are non-essential. You're certainly not in fellowships. Why are you not in fellowships? Because you've got nothing to give. You've got nothing to give yourself. You start to feel awkward because you've got no real experience. The second public casualty is usually the prayer meeting. Why? Because your own desire to pray has been quenched and your belief in the power of prayer has been diminished. How, how can you gather enthusiastically with God's people in a prayer meeting when you're not praying? Dear me, it's all very obvious. At this point, the devil actually hardly needs to get involved at all. He's still just watching and he's noticing. He's noticing where you are and where you aren't. And that's when he begins the chase. That's when he begins to start harassing you with lies and deceptions and accusations. You'll justify your own isolation. Oh, these prayers are very long and they're boring and they're meandering and they're never getting anywhere. I'm just better off myself on my own. You speak to some people and they, you get the feeling that they've outgrown these meetings. They don't really need them anymore. Really? Out pops self-righteousness. Because at the end of the day it's all about yourself and not about others. And all of a sudden you've given way to pride and unbelief. And if you're not careful, the light that is seeing you becomes darkness, full of arrogance, bitterness, ignorance, unbelief and pride. And you know, unless you wake up from that, all that's left is a carcass for the devil to eat. hundreds of professing people, once professing people in this island, who are nowhere near the Church of God anymore. Whether they stay like that or not, I don't know. I'm not God, neither are you. But one thing sure, many of them never seem to go back again, because they never took any of this seriously. Of course, we need to stay with God's people. As um, Solomon <coughs> Well, he could well speak, as Solomon counsels us in the first chapter of the book about our company, where he tells, Tell me, you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon. Why should I be like one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? If you do not know fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock. And feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tent. Now, if you may be falling asleep today, you can take this word to you as Christ Himself rousing you as He roused them in Gethsemane. Wake up. Wake up and watch and pray. You know, when you're being woken up in the morning, there's that point sometimes, maybe some of you can identify this, where you've got a decision to make. Let's pause. It's possible for you to do it, but 
you can either drift back to sleep or, or you can get up. It's a point where you realize that somebody's communicating to you, somebody's talking with you, and you can either wake up or else you can just go back to sleep. And if, if that sleep has really got a hold of you, then even the rousing, it just doesn't, it's just harder to rouse you. And three times the Lord came back to the disciples. Three times. Are you still sleeping? He said to them the third time. Are you still sleeping? Watch and pray. Well, friends, if the devil's come in, you need a standard. It's one thing to know we're in a fight. It's one thing to know the cunning. Because after a while, the devil just drops his mask and he just there's a full frontal attack on God's people. What they need is a rod. We'll look at that next time. Let us pray. <coughs> O Lord, our God, enable us to know our enemy and uh, to be sober and to be vigilant, for he does seek to devour. And there are many times when he has made inroads, perhaps into all of our lives, and we have sometimes been slow to detect him. Like the lion, he can well hide himself. We pray, O Lord, to Cleave close to the one who is our rock and our defence. The one who has given us the whole armour of God that we might be able to gird ourselves with it and to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. In Christ's name, Amen. <coughs> our last singing is in Psalm 91. which leads us to a place of refuge, of course. Psalm 91 is really a bit of a, a battleground and a wasteland, uh, and people are perishing in it. 10,000 dead, verse 7, a thousand falling at your side and 10,000 dead, but it shall not once come nigh to thee. And the reason for that is in verse 1, he that doth in secret place of the most high reside, under the shade of him that is the Almighty shall abide. I of the Lord my God will say, He is my refuge still. He is my fortress and my God, and in him trust I will. Assuredly he shall be saved and give deliverance from subtle fowler snare and from the noisome pestilence. His feathers shall be hide. Thy trust under his wings shall be. His faithfulness shall be a shield and buckler unto thee. Terrible danger and devastation all round. The only defence in God. We'll stand to sing the opening four stars. <coughs> <coughs>
Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.